Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode, but the core human experience is the same, which is that it's hard being different. It's hard entering new environments that expect you to be fluent and understand a culture or a system. And we fundamentally believe that a mentor, a human with a common lived experience can help. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your families are all doing well and staying healthy. My guest today is a Forbes 30 under 30 in education and the co-founder and CEO of a startup that deploys social capital for student success in higher education. Originally, together with his co-founder, they started doing pro bono work with a few regional universities in Boston by designing mentorship programs for international students. Over time, those early partners encouraged them to consider supporting more diverse student populations. And this is how their pro bono work became a for-profit startup. Together we discuss how relationships shape the experience and outcomes of a student's journey through higher education. Some students will find these relationships among faculty and advisors. However, many more will struggle to forge the long-lasting relationships that drive student success and open doors. We also unpack how in today's uncertainty, amid COVID-19, mentors can raise flags for students who are facing high levels of anxiety, financial stress, and other COVID-19-related issues. I'm thrilled to introduce to you today Jackson Boyer, the co-founder and CEO of Mentor Collective, where they seek to make life-changing relationships a feature of every student's college experience. To realize this vision, today Mentor Collective partners with over 50 forward-thinking institutions that are committed to equity, inclusion, and relationship-centered education. You can learn more about Jackson Boyer and Mentor Collective at mentorcollective.org. Let's dive right in. Hello, Jackson. Welcome to Impact Learning. Hi, Maria. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with your childhood. Do you have something that you learned as a child that triggered your interests later on in life? Many things. I had a very privileged and fortunate upbringing in New Jersey. I was fortunate to attend a school where the sort of holistic student was very valued. It was a Waldorf school. Some listeners might be familiar with Waldorf education. Um, This is an environment where, as opposed to more rigid rote measures of learning, students are encouraged to explore the world, to delve into creativity. Art is infused throughout the curriculum, and uh, you know we'll get into it later, perhaps. But 
some of the early learning experiences I had were really focused on my holistic well-being, my sense of self, my ability to be introspective and creative. And that, I think, early upbringing was one of the reasons why I ultimately became very interested in education because of the privilege I had in my own experience. So as a kid, what did you want to, to be when you grow up? That's a, a great question. I think it probably changed uh, every single year until I got to a more reasonable age of about 14 or 15. I think at, at one point it was uh, being a sports star. Uh, another point it was being a train conductor. I think part of, part of my upbringing in the early years was actually not really having any idea what I wanted to be and being comfortable in that ambiguity. Uh, I, I didn't feel like there was pressure to be a certain thing. I had a, a father who was an entrepreneur who changed careers many times. I had a mother who was a doctor, but uh, also took time off to invest in being an incredible mother. And so the role models around me were really uh, there to support my own exploration of what I wanted to be. And I think ultimately in high school and, and even college, I, I wasn't certain. I, I knew that I wanted to do something with intercultural communication, um, helping people find themselves. I ultimately realized that was in education, at the intersection of education and technology. But in the early years, it was just about the, the personal interactions I had, the things I learned about that I liked. There was never this distant idea of a profession that I had to adhere to. Beautiful. You have a memorable teaching moment from your dad. What did he tell you or what kind of advice did he give you? Yeah, my dad more so showed, not told me um, what was possible. Uh, I think he emphasized the importance of investing in a career that made me happy and made me excited. He is somebody that wasn't great with authority figures and uh, had some ups and downs through his own career, uh, both in the military and later in large uh, accounting and law firms that were not great for him because of him feeling sort of suffocated by those cultures And I think growing up, either directly or indirectly, it was reinforced that I should pursue something that made me excited to wake up in the morning, that allowed me to make decisions almost unilaterally that were good for me and good for the people around me, and not being trapped in this uh, culture that might be more controlled by others. So it, it's really that you know, stereotypical entrepreneurial energy um, that he sort of radiated and, and passed on to me. Mm -hmm. Very nice. How old were you when you made your trip to China? Yeah. So one of the very formative experiences I had growing up was studying abroad in China during high school. I did this when I was 16 years old. At the time, I didn't speak a single word of Mandarin Chinese, and I was placed into a homestay for a full year of high school with a family that didn't speak a word of English. And this was at a time when You know, smartphones did not exist. The, the digital dictionary was not available. So I spent multiple months early in China. I was in Beijing at the time, leafing through dictionaries just to understand how to communicate uh, about the simplest ideas to my host family. And it's really, to this day, it, it feels like a win decision that I would go study abroad in China, explore a culture so vastly different from my own. But In retrospect, I, I realize and I realize it to be one of the best decisions I could have made at the time. It really uh, opened my eyes to how people from such different backgrounds could be both similar 
uh, and different at the same time. And living directly in this uh, Beijing homestay for nine months really opened my eyes to how people with different assumptions, different upbringings can interact really positively. And to this day, I stay in touch with my Chinese host family. Um, I had a host brother at the time who's also 16. He actually ended up going to get an MBA in the United States. And you know, now almost 15 years later, I'm, I'm still in touch with my host parents on a regular basis. This is beautiful. And so when you came back from uh, China, you were also considering what you would uh, like to study, I guess, in college. So what did you end up studying? I ended up majoring in Chinese. I majored in Chinese and minored in economics. The one thing I knew going into college is that I wanted to continue this study of language, which was, was the partial interest studying the language. It was more so studying something that was different, uh, the culture, the politics, the economics of China, the way people interact. And so China was sort of my primary interest at the time. I came into college already quite fluent in Mandarin, but I wanted to go deeper. And I was fortunate to receive some funding from the U.S. government and State Department to uh, sort of professionalize my Mandarin. And at the time, I thought I might work for the government. Uh, I might go into international relations, but ultimately went a very different direction into entrepreneurship. But at the time, I was just very interested in how America and China, these two vastly different cultures, interacted um, and how I might be able to be a bridge between the two, given this very intimate, intensive experience I had with my Chinese host family, and then, of course, my knowledge of American culture. Mm -hmm. When I think of learning a, a, a new language, especially when we live in the, you know, the specific country, I think of it as a way, as a tool to communicate and build relationships. And I did the same when I was in Germany, when I was in Shanghai. I'm not as fluent in Mandarin as you are, obviously. But it was a way for me to like connect with them like on a deeper level, like with the culture. The same thing with eating local food, right? It's, it's the way that we connect, but also language is a way to communicate and build relationships. Mm -hmm. So how was your experience during college? Uh, and I think you were involved quite a bit with the international students community. I was, and that was largely because of this formative experience I had in high school. I came into a large state institution, Indiana University, you know, in the middle of the country, um, that at the time was experiencing a drastic increase in Chinese international student enrollment. And if you have ever visited Bloomington, Indiana, it's a beautiful city. There's uh, restaurants from all different countries and cultures in this bubble around the college town, but the state of Indiana reflects a very different culture. And for say a Chinese international student coming from Shanghai or Shenzhen, growing up in the metropolis, suddenly being in Indiana in this more traditionally valued culture, uh, it was it was incredible culture shock. And that was something that resonated with me because I had gone from a relatively rural part of New Jersey to China, Beijing, uh, 2006 before the Olympics, and I had this culture shock myself. And then suddenly at college, many of my friends around me were Chinese international students who were just really beginning to achieve fluency in English. And now they're asked to, you know, take tests in English, to get good grades in English, to make friends in English. And I knew what that feeling was like. And so many of my friends were these Chinese international students who were just trying to figure out how to make Bloomington, Indiana a home. Uh, in the same way I was trying to make Beijing, China a home. 
And I, I think that was another sort of stepping stone on my path to what I do today. But I, I found that I was often the only American friend in these groups of international students because I, I understood them on some level. And I was a little bit closer, a little bit more within the comfort zone. I think, you know, no Chinese international student would have dared to rush a fraternity uh, to step into this heavily American culture outside of the international community. But I was a little bit safer because I could help bridge that gap. And again, it, it just had me reflecting on how do I help uh, break down some of the barriers between these different student groups on campus. And it wasn't just the Chinese students, it was all the international students. It was students who are coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds. I saw the divisions on this college campus of people just wanting to cling to what was comfortable and what was like them. And I felt that that was really um, a travesty for the college experience. Colleges bring so many different people into one place, yet they still remain siloed. Um, and so the international lens was my initial foray into that, but I, I felt there was so much more that I could do that the university could do to bring people together. Mm -hmm. I love what you said about uh, bridging gaps and creating bridges where where there is a gap or a problem, but you try to bridge the gap and try to make a connection or build a bridge. So when we look at your experience, again, through your international experience in China and then through the um, college experience, how does this bring you now to a mentor collective? What is the... What is the evolution and how does this uh, bring you to co-founding Mentor Collective? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start around my junior year of college when I was studying abroad in China and still, frankly, trying to figure out what I wanted to do uh, as a Chinese major graduating from a state institution. There aren't a ton of jobs coming your way. I, I realized I could work for the government, but not a lot of other options. Um, I ended up becoming infatuated with the idea of being a management consultant, as many college students do. Um, my university didn't have a lot of management consulting firms coming to campus, but our business school did. And so I was able to sneak my way into a business school career fair and network my way into a couple interviews. And I was fortunate to, to ultimately get a job offer in Boston, working at a, a top management consulting firm you know, it was something I wasn't formally trained in. Again, there was a lot of culture shock acclimating to that environment. Uh, and I learned a ton uh, and I'm very grateful for the experience in retrospect. But as I got deeper into management consulting, I felt like there was this huge missing piece that I'd really connected with as I studied China, as I was a student in college, which was how different people with different notions of, of what it is to be a human connect and engage with one another. And I kept feeling like I, I invested in becoming fluent in Mandarin and now I'm not using it in work. How can I somehow bring this to bear? And so I ended up reaching out to one of my early childhood teachers who was recently the head of ESL at a boarding school in New Hampshire. And this is a very small boarding school struggling with enrollment that had started looking to international students to bolster their enrollment and enrich their culture. And she, because we had a, a strong relationship, was telling me of all the challenges these students were facing as they, again, came from this metropolis, a, a very um, developed city, and then suddenly into a small boarding school in New Hampshire, uh, two environments that could not be more different. 
and the culture shock and issues of acclimation those students were going through. And I, at the time, had a full-time job in consulting, working 70 or 80 hours a week, but I, I wanted to do something with a little bit of time I had on the side to help those students and help my former teacher build a more inclusive culture uh, at this boarding school. And so what I did initially was reach out to a bunch of my friends who understood Chinese culture, and I asked them to be mentors for these high school students. We weren't charging anything for it. It was just something that I felt I could contribute to those students' experiences. Uh, I ended up working with one of my best friends at the time, who's now my co-founder, uh, on this concept. But it was, it was really a pro bono effort to help bridge a cultural gap for these high school students. And over time, the high school sort of said, this is great. The students are getting a ton of value out of these mentoring relationships. We feel guilty that we're not paying you. And we said, oh, there might actually be a business here. And to be frank, we were enjoying the work so much more than our day jobs, you know, entering data into Excel and into PowerPoint slides. And so we, we made the decision to take a sabbatical and explore what would ultimately become Mentor Collective uh, more fully. Mm -hmm. For someone who doesn't know Mentor Collective, who do you serve and what problem do you basically address? So there has been an evolution over the years from that initial idea of helping people acclimate to American culture to what we do today. But the core human experience is the same, which is that it's hard being different. It's hard entering new environments that expect you to be fluent and understand a culture or a system. And we fundamentally believe that a mentor, a human with a common lived experience can help. If I extrapolate that out to the problem we're solving, it is fundamentally one of equity and access across American higher education. Right now, the national graduation rates in America are stagnant over six years, not four years, but six. Only 58% of college students will graduate. And if you are a low income student or an underrepresented student, your chances of graduation are even lower. So there are massive inequities in a system that already doesn't work for 40% plus of students. And of course, many folks are aware of the massive uh, financial constraints of attending college. Many students on average are graduating with uh, $30,000 of debt. So that's the pain point, the, the issues with the college system of America. The flip side of that is that college has the opportunity to transform someone's economic and social status and provide what's called social mobility. So give people access to future earnings. If you graduate from college, you will make $3 million more in your lifetime. And for historically underserved populations of Americans and international students, that can represent a, a drastic change in generational wealth that can just unlock potential for not just one individual, but for families, for communities. So on one end, higher ed has this incredible potential. On another side of the spectrum, it's actually failing a lot of students. And so we think about mentoring relationships in that context. We want to ensure that every student entering college, persisting through college, has access to somebody who's trained, who is relevant, who has a common lived experience and can mentor them through the new systems, the new fluencies that one needs to understand to graduate from college. And when you really look at the data, the reason students drop out of college or give up 
It's a mindset challenge. It's a time management challenge. It's not always academics. It's not always financial constraints like paying for tuition. Those are factors, absolutely, but they are not the only reasons students drop out. And through our work, we found through various randomized control trials and, and research that mentoring relationships can have a massive lift on a student's likelihood to persist. And we know if they persist, they will graduate. If they graduate, they will get jobs and they will bring earning and potential to their families and their community. And that's ultimately the why of what we do. It's, it's to change um, higher ed for the better so that it can serve more students and work for more people. Mm -hmm. So when I think of mentoring, I think of uh, the guidance, support. What about though, um, helping them build skills? Because you talked about some additional, you know, what I call real life skills in addition to the technical skills that we need to be able to be, to have a successful university or college journey? What kind of skills do they learn? Yeah. So there's a couple of different varieties of mentoring we provide at Mentor Collective. Um, one type is, is peer mentoring, which we primarily provide in the early student experience. So say I'm a first-generation college student about to attend university for the first time, we would match that student with a sophomore, junior, or senior from the same institution who has been trained, uh, who might come from a similar background to really help them just navigate campus and be a thought partner through accessing all the resources available on campus, talking about which classes to take, how to think about extracurricular activities. Um, certainly there is skill development in that experience, um, but it's really about confidence building. It's about breaking down barriers, confronting imposter syndrome, all of these things that we know lead to greater success in college. Um, the, the second type of mentoring we have worked on is career mentoring. Uh, so this is where you're seeing more proactive skill development um, networking skills, uh, building confidence, interview skills, reviewing resumes. That's when we're connecting uh, an upper division student, a junior, a senior, or a graduate student um, with typically an alumni or employer mentor. This is somebody who's in the workforce, can speak to the skills needed to get an outcome in the workforce, so get a job, get an internship, uh, but also help people feel more confident as they pursue those, those possibilities. Mm -hmm. How long uh, do the students, I guess, stay with a mentoring program? Is it one year or throughout the whole experience? How does it work? In most programs, the mentoring relationship is a one-year commitment from mentor and mentee. That isn't to say that these relationships don't flourish long after. We have many examples from the tens of thousands of students we served where that is the case. But the expectation is one that the mentor can commit to for, for a year and know that if their life changes, they, they're not letting down this mentee. And if they want to re-up and continue in the future, that's something for them to negotiate on their own. So you believe that mentoring is a skill that we can all develop with practice. So tell us a little bit more about how you put that actually into practice. Like what is the end-to-end -end process you have for mentors from the time you identify them to all the way to matching them with a mentee. How does this work? Yeah, I think it starts with understanding the reality that almost everybody can be a mentor. Now, I think a lot of academics would be uh, uneasy to hear that a student who might be on academic probation could be a mentor. It's really about who they are and how they're mentoring. If the mentoring is about navigating campus, getting through the freshman year experience, Anybody who's successfully gotten through the freshman year experience actually has a lived experience that is valuable and they can share. 
And a lot of the research on mentoring is about the mentee, but we think that the mentor arguably gets more out of the mentoring experience because they are training somebody else. Uh, and in that process of, of training and guiding somebody else, they're realizing how much they know. And that builds confidence and self-efficacy for the mentor. Um, but to sort of tactically talk through the experience of a mentor, when we work with universities, we help them identify and recruit mentors from their community. They could be upper division students, they could be alumni. Uh, we're using outreach campaigns, text and email to first understand who wants to be a mentor, who's going to raise their hand. But then we put them through a screening and onboarding and training process to make sure that they are equipped and ready to be a mentor before we ever put them formally in front of a mentee. And so that involves asynchronous, so quizzes, videos, uh, and synchronous training, uh, online webinars, where we have professionalized staff who lead mentor trainings basically around the clock. And we, we've trained a lot of mentors at Mentor Collective. Sometimes those mentors live in Australia. Sometimes they live around the block from the institution uh, in America. And we wanted to provide a virtual context for those mentors to get access to training and support so that they don't have to be physically present to become a mentor. But once those mentors complete training, we then match them to a mentee. The matching is based upon the mentor's background and experience, but most importantly, what the mentee is looking for from a relationship. So we give the mentees agency over which mentor they'd like to be paired to. And we've found over the years that there are definitely certain inputs that lead to more engagement and a more flourishing relationship between the mentor and mentee. Mm -hmm. So when I look what you offer compared to maybe in-house mentoring, because there are you know institutions, colleges, universities, big and small, that they have their own system in place, what makes Mentor Collective scalable and more consistent? Yeah. So those are the two words I would, I would use to describe it. Um, I think mentoring is not a new concept in higher education. If you were to look at multiple university mission statements, that word mentoring might even come up. The reason we exist, frankly, is that it's really logistically complex to manage a mentoring program, even for 30 students. So when you think about an institution that might have 400 incoming freshmen, 4,000 incoming freshmen, 10,000 incoming freshmen, how do you scale such that each mentoring relationship reflects the personal needs of every single mentee, such that there is effective training, effective accountability and follow through uh, between the mentor and the mentee. When we first started, we had many conversations with university leaders to understand just the state of mentoring in higher education. And number one, that word means a lot of different things, to a lot of different people. Sometimes it's faculty mentoring. Sometimes they're really talking about networking. Sometimes it's peer mentorship. We really hone in on peer mentoring, taking somebody who is a couple years ahead, but not so hierarchical or more experienced than the mentee that it distorts the relationship. And we, we found that across university campuses, there's often 15, if not more, mentoring initiatives. But they're really siloed into one department. They might serve 30, 40, or 50 students. Um, they're often driven by one incredibly charismatic administrator who puts their lifeblood into this program. The mentors all know this individual personally. Uh, and these are high-impact programs. There's no doubting that. It's just that it's taking so much time to manage what is relatively small scale. 
And if that administrator leaves the university, the program might die as they leave their post. So when we talk to a provost or a president, we really challenge them to envision uh, a campus where no matter where somebody is in the student life cycle, there is always an effective mentoring program accessible for that student. And to do that across, say, Indiana University, where I went to college, you need to have systems, you need to have technology in place that drive engagement and, and ultimately work for different students at different stages of the life cycle. So let's dig a little bit more into this uh, comment you made. Is it more of the technology? Is it the process you identify mentors? Is it how you measure you know, the different things you measure throughout the process? What makes it work? Yeah. I, so there are three things to me that are unique about what we do. Um, technology is one of them. But the other two are uh, staffing or a team. And then the third is research and expertise. So if you were to do a literature review of uh, peer mentoring in higher education, you'd probably uncover thousands, potentially thousands, certainly hundreds of published research articles peer reviewed on the topic of mentoring. There's a lot of theory of what works and what does not. Uh, overwhelmingly, the research suggests that peer mentoring is a high impact practice for uh, in particular, first-gen underrepresented students, but all students. But there isn't a common understanding for what works tactically for an institution to implement peer mentoring. And so we, over six years of doing this, running hundreds of programs, have started to test through randomized control trials, A-B tests, different methods, and understand what actually works in program design and implementation to ensure there's a high-quality mentoring program being delivered. To do that, then, once we understand sort of theoretically and conceptually how to deliver a good program, you also need to have the staffing and the technology. And we, we, we think that staffing is critical because there are so many tools that could deliver a mentoring experience. When, when my co-founder and I started the company, we didn't have technology, but we pulled together Google Forms, Dropbox, all these different tools that were free across the internet, and we delivered a large-scale mentoring program. Over time, Mentor Collective's platform has been built out to make that process much easier, much better for the mentors and mentees. But it was really the team behind the platform and the research behind the platform that made it effective. And oftentimes universities will say, you know, we, we bought this new flashy platform that lets mentors and mentees connect, but no one is using it. What do we do? And, and that's fundamentally where we need to start the conversation is if no one's going to use it, is the software valuable? And, and our team and our research ensure that the platform is used, and most importantly, ensure that it works for student outcomes. And so when, when I talk to university about this, it's, it's really how, how are these things that Mentor Collective provides helping with student outcomes? And I think those three are the, the critical points. I want to go back to the beginning of your journey. How long did it take you before you had the first uh... I guess, university or college partner that signed a kind of contract. Yeah. So we started pro bono in 2013, actually. We didn't even have an entity. We were just running these programs on the side pro bono. In 2014, we quit our jobs. At the time, we did not have any contracts. It took us until 2015, almost 12 months until we got our first contract. Um, and it certainly was not enough to cover our living expenses. So there were there was about 12 months there where we significantly downgraded our lifestyle and dipped into our savings. You know, I 
very privileged to not have had debt, college debt that I had to think about that enabled me to go pursue my entrepreneurial dreams. And not everyone has that luxury, but uh, we were able to, and it was tough for 12 months. We almost gave up many times, but um, in 2015, uh, Tufts University here in Boston uh, was the first school that gave us a chance. They certainly didn't pay us a lot for what we were doing, but to us, the opportunity to impact several hundred students to work with a school like Tufts was uh, remarkable and, and very exciting. And it was off the back of that early work that we started building out more partnerships with more universities. And that's how we came to where we are today, working with over 80. Wow. And how many students have you supported through the mentoring program? Yeah, in, in higher ed, we've matched over 40,000 students with mentors. And this year, we're uh, on track to match close to 100,000 students. There's been a lot of growth and scale just in the last two or three years. Um, when we first started, actually, we were so focused on one population of students, the international students, which later became the first generation college students. And we really sort of built out programming student population by student population. But today, we run programs for all incoming students. It's a very holistic approach. And that, of course, leads to significant scale, whereas previously, we were really thinking about these, these smaller populations. Mm -hmm. Let me ask a question here, more of out of curiosity. So when you were serving this, the first generation or the international students, because they do have certain attributes or certain challenges, now that you have uh, broadened the program to, let's say, all incoming students, does this make the program work better? I have found that it has. I should say we have found that it has. Uh, ultimately, mentoring is a human experience. And as much as we do to train mentors, the most important thing is that you're matched with somebody who gets you, who is in, emotionally invested in you as a person. And so when you think about a university that has several thousand students matched with mentors every year, we have a very large mentor force or mentor pool to support that population of students. It, it could be six, seven, eight hundred active trained mentors on an annual basis. And that means there's a lot of diversity represented among those 800 mentors. And if I am a mentee entering my sophomore year looking for a mentor who has a very specific background, the likelihood of me finding that person in that 800 is much higher. So in some ways, the larger the network of mentors, the more relevant the pairing between mentor and mentee, and the more the culture of mentoring sort of permeates the campus to the point where it is encouraged and reinforced from multiple places, not just Mentor Collective and not just the university. So let's come now to today. Uh, we are in the midst of a different situation. How has uh, COVID-19 affected what you do? What are the big challenges or changes that uh, has brought to, to Mentor Collective? Yeah, and I'll, I'll share from a couple of different perspectives. The first of which is as a small business owner, uh, Mentor Collective is a company like so many others, which represents a community of people who are impacted by this. And you know, we're very fortunate as a company that we're not running out of money. Um, we're certainly impacted by, by this, but we were able to make commitments to our staff that there would be security uh, you know, through COVID-19. And 
ultimately, you know, we, we think that what we do as a company is actually more relevant now than ever. That's not to say that people are impacted at our company. You know, we have many working parents. We have many people that now have two, three times the commitment outside of work to their families. And we wanted to emphasize that no matter what, that is the highest priority. You know, we think our work at Meta Collective is critical at this time, but um, we want to make sure people are taking care of themselves and their families first. Uh, in terms of how this has impacted our, our mentoring programs and our current university partners, uh, we've seen an uptick in engagement between mentors and mentees. We think that as students and their mentors are now isolated at home, uh, there's an increased desire to connect. And you know, ideally that's in person, walking down the street at a restaurant, but when it can't be in person, virtual will have to suffice and, and our mentoring relationships live through whatever is happening on campus. So um, we're seeing increased engagement between mentors and mentees. And then when we talk to universities about the work that we do, we're seeing a lot of concern for the fall. Right now, most universities are still in the, the final weeks of the spring semester, and they're really just focused on how do we support these students into graduation and into the summer. But I think shortly, the university leadership will be lifting its head up to look to the fall and, and worrying about what enrollment might look like. Will a first-time student want to attend university in the fall if they're taking classes from their parents' basement? And uh, we already know how challenging college is for so many students, as I shared earlier. Uh, this only makes it harder. And the, the research shows that it's the in-person interactions, the engagement on campus that helps a lot of students persist to graduate. So in this virtual environment, how, how are universities going to serve students? And, and for us, we think that connecting them with a mentor is probably the least we can do to help them persist and, and feel connected to the institution and the community. Um, so we're worried about students in this environment, but we're also cautiously optimistic that we can really help. And so I think despite all the challenges surrounding the field of higher ed and frankly, the entire world, um, we feel heartened and excited that we, we have the potential to impact thousands of students and help um, amid the crisis. Mm -hmm. Did you have to adjust anything in the approach when you think of like distance mentoring, as we say, distance learning, distance teaching. Now we're talking right now uh, about distance mentoring. So there is no an opportunity to grab coffee or, you know, meet after the class or something. Did you have to make any change? And uh, are there any opportunities you can tap into? So we've been doing distance mentoring for many years now. We, we are intentionally what we call platform agnostic um, in terms of how the mentors and mentees communicate. We do not force them to use our app to communicate because that is ultimately increased friction in their relationship. If they prefer to use WhatsApp, Facebook, they can use it. And, and the result of that is that, you know, while maybe 20 or 30% of mentoring relationships will connect in person, a lot of the mentoring actually occurs over video chat, over text messaging, over phone calls. And so that's only in, increased and, and continued during COVID-19. Uh, in terms of opportunities for the future, I think there, there's so much more we can do in a virtual climate um, to not just have one-on-one -on -one relationships, but connect mentors to other mentors in the program, to connect mentees to other mentees in the program, and really just envision a, a, a virtual community for students going through a common experience. Mm -hmm. 
as I'm thinking now of what uh, some students may, may be going through, they may be dealing with more anxiety, with more financial stress, if one or both of their parents have been affected, and other things that maybe three months ago they did not have to deal with. How do you take this into account to make sure that you look after them and they don't, let's say, things do not fall through cracks? Yeah, and, and it's a lot of responsibility for the mentor in, in that context. We work with a handful of universities in New York City, and we know that New York is the epicenter or has been the epicenter of coronavirus in the U.S. There are students in our programs who have family members infected in hospitals going through unimaginable challenge and pain at this time while trying to pursue their degree. So I think, like I said earlier with our company, it's, it's about caring for the human, caring for the family before you think about anything else. Uh, and that's how we've coached our mentors and mentees. That's how we've communicated with them at this time. But in addition to that, we also have some tools that allow mentors to flag to the institution and to mentor collective when their mentee is facing uh, a significant challenge. So we, we rolled out a new flag for COVID-19 that the mentors can flag to the university that will lead to additional support. It could be an advisor reaching out, the counseling center reaching out. Um, in addition to coronavirus flags, we, we have flags for anxiety, uh, for financial aid challenges. And it's just another pair of eyes and ears looking out for the student. Sometimes the mentor is not the expert that needs to deliver the intervention, but they can surface some challenges and help the university provide additional support. And in the case of some of our partners, that's resulted in a student getting emergency financial aid, getting financial support to take care of their family. And then we've been really heartened by the way so many of our university partners have risen to the occasion to do everything in their, in their power to support students in need. Mm -hmm. Very good. Very nice to hear all that. You mentioned the goal that you have for 2020 to reach uh, 100,000 students. I wonder if you also have any uh, aspiration to uh, support like uh, community colleges and maybe more public education or public institutions. Any thoughts around that? Absolutely. Uh, our most recent round of financing included several impact investors. Um, like Lumina Foundation. And uh, one of the primary reasons we wanted to work with these impact investors is that we felt it would ground us and help us uh, ensure we're consistently supporting the students who need mentoring most. And you mentioned community colleges. Uh, that has already become a major focus for the company. Uh, we, we have uh, several community college partners we've worked with in the past and still work with today, but we are making concerted efforts to reach out to um, two-year institutions, uh, HBCUs, Hispanic-serving institutions, any institutions in higher ed that are disproportionately serving historically underserved populations. We know that those universities have less funding, and that means concessions on our end in terms of what we're asking for in compensation for our work. And, and we're very comfortable with that. We, we don't exist just to make money. We exist to close real equity gaps in higher ed. Um, and, and so far, the initial conversations with some of those community college and HBCU leaders have been extremely positive. Times are tough now, but we, we think that uh, moving forward, we'll see a lot more engagement and, and partnership uh, in those areas. Very nice. My favorite question what is the one thing you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? Hmm. You know, I am I am really happy 
in terms of, of what I get to do every day. I'm only 30 years old and I could not imagine being more professionally fulfilled in my career. I, I do have an ego like many entrepreneurs and the idea that I have built something, I've contributed to something that outlives me, the person, uh, is important to me. Uh, but in some ways, I, I feel like I did that the moment we ran our first mentoring program that impacted one student. And the idea that we're impacting tens of thousands of students on a monthly basis still blows my mind today. Uh, the idea that we have a staff of over 40 people who called Mentor Collective a home and an employer, um, that still blows my mind. That our culture has transcended me and my co-founder, that there are people who think about us and care about us on the weekends, that, that still blows my mind. So the, the short answer is that I, I feel like I've left my mark. I've, I have some degree of legacy already. I just want it to continue. And I want it to create a ripple effect so that more people can be inspired. I hope that our early employees start their own social impact companies in the future, uh, that every student we serve in our mentoring program gets some lift, some improvement in their life, and that that pass is passed on to others. That's the power of education. It's why, why I'm in this field. So I feel like I'm on the right path. Uh, I couldn't be more satisfied, and I feel very energized about the future. Thank you so much. Really wonderful to get to know your work, which I, uh, I got to know through webinars, and also get to know you, your journey, and uh, learn more about the impact you are creating with your team through Mentor Collective. So thank you for the time. Yeah, thanks so much, Maria. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jackson Boyer. If you're an educator, a student, or a parent, and you want to learn more about Mentor Collective, you can subscribe to their website at mentorcollective.org. They frequently organize webinars where you can hear their university partners speak about the impact that Mentor Collective is making on students in higher education. It was one of these webinars that helped me learn more about their work and inspired me to invite Jackson to join me on the podcast. What resonated with me the most as I was listening to Jackson's story is how he started his entrepreneurial journey. While he was at Indiana University, he noticed that his fellow international students were struggling to get used to the American culture and their new lifestyle. Later on, when a family friend saw international students at her boarding school face very similar issues, Jackson offered to help her out. He invited a few of his friends to join his side mentoring project. Following that, together with his co-founder, they started by doing pro bono work with a few regional universities in Boston. It was only after they began creating a noticeable impact that they realized that there was a business opportunity in mentoring. And this is how Mentor Collective became a for-profit startup in education. And now, I have a few questions for those of you who are listening and aspiring to become an entrepreneur. What is the problem you are trying to solve? How can you use your skills and experience to solve this problem and make an impact? How can you validate that there is a business opportunity around your idea? And who do you need to bring together or partner with to help you solve this problem faster and better? 
I wish you and your loved ones good health. Stay calm, stay connected. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can also subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.